Lucky you. 36 best holes in golf. Alternate Shots Podcast. Barney's Army. Where we talk about golf. Sandy. Poker. James Bond. Horse racing. Double. Classic movies. Zenyatta. We have no script. Down the stretch they come. We are glad you joined us. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. (laughs) So, Billy Regan, so we are thrilled to have back on the Alternate Shots Podcast, Billy Harmon. Welcome, Billy. Master storyteller. Really, master storyteller. Hopefully, will tell us some great stories about the masters. I have a few. Yes. Yeah. So, Billy, was this the time that you packed up in Seminole? This kind of time frame, just before the Masters, and the big station wagon is going to go north, is sort of around this, or was it a little earlier? Well, I was actually very young when Dad was at Seminole. I have very few memories of it. Uh, I know we lived in a little house right off the sixth hole. But I was in the, uh, I think when he left Seminole was 57, maybe. So I would have been seven years old. So I don't have a lot of memories of Seminole on a a personal basis. So uh, my recollection is we flew. Uh, That's the first time I ever was on a plane. So I think that's my only recollection uh, of when, when we went and when we left. So I don't have a lot of Seminole memories, oddly enough. I do know that he left there one year in 1948 to go back to Wingfoot, and he stopped off at a place and uh, won a little tournament called the Masters. I do know that happened, but I wasn't born then either. So, uh. And he was, you know, we're looking at these pictures of uh, <clears throat> Wingfoot 13, and I guess that's August 13 also? 12. 12. And it, it occurred to me that... Um, I've never played Augusta, but you see on on the on the television and you hear the stories about all the undulations in the greens. Do you think the similarity on that level with the undulations in the wing foot greens were helpful to Claude? Well, I think for sure uh, they were because um, I think back then, you know, where we have we would talk about Oakmont, maybe Wingfoot Greens there, and Augusta National. So, uh, and as you know, as a lawnmower has improved. I know that uh, when I played Wingfoot last fall, the greens were pretty fast. And then I played uh, Augusta National uh, last fall also. And I would say that um, the greens that I thought for a set of 18 greens might have been more difficult at Wingfoot than the set of 18 greens at Augusta. So I think that's a really good point that you bring up, that he was used to fast undulating greens. And uh, when you play Wingfoot or Augusta National or an Oakmont, you have to learn uh, what I call the art of two-putting, you know, because you could have a 20-footer and uh, the last thought you're thinking about is holding it. You're thinking about figuring out a way to uh, leave it stone dead. So I think it had to be a a big help. Or you'll have another 20-footer. That's correct. So I think it had to be a big help. I think that's a very good point. My brother used to love these greens, and there's so many places that are the wing foot greens where you literally turn your back on the hole to putt it in some in some positions. So that I imagine that would be a big help to anybody when they find. Well, I also greens. think from a golf course management standpoint, uh, Augusta is very interesting in the sense that um, it lures you into the wrong places uh, sometimes. You know, we always say don't short side yourself on an approach shot. Sometimes at Augusta, you're better off short siding yourself 
then you are having a 30 foot putt from the middle of the green. Uh, on the 14th hole would be an example, the par four with the huge mounds in the front of the green. It's a very easy chip from over the green. It's an impossible putt if you've got a 40 footer from the left of the hole and the pins in the right. So it kind of lures you into missing in the wrong point, which seemed to be intellectually the right place to go. Uh, but you'd find out you could have an easier bunker shot or an easier pitch shot sometimes in a 30 or 40 foot putt. So that's where I think a lot of the local knowledge comes at Augusta would be the same at Wingfoot. Sometimes where to miss is more important than where to hit it. I think Mackenzie was big on that in his design. Uh, part, when he opened Cypress, he couldn't be there and the reviews came back outstanding. And he first thought was, what did I do wrong? <laughs> um, and he came to the conclusion that he didn't account for beauty as much as, as he should have. But he, he was a, 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 a he espoused that it, it takes people a long time to learn the right way to play the game before they the, the course before they can appreciate it. That, that speaks to what you just said. Well, as you know, um, and I say this all the time, when I grew up in golf, uh, they didn't have golf communities like they have now. And so the pro had a little bit more responsibility on letting people know when they're ready to go play golf. You know, and they started them in junior clinics. And, uh, you know, I see so many, there's still some people around Wingfoot that started in my dad's junior clinics. You know, and one of the things that you see, they have good grips. <laughs> they know how to set up to the ball because they started properly. And they can get out of bunkers. And yeah, and now with golf communities, which I understand because I work at one, I, and that mine is high end. So I jokingly say they're, they're selling $5 million hamburgers now. <laughs> uh, and it's pretty hard to tell somebody that, you know, just joined a club for 150000 and got a $5 million house that they can't go out, <laughs> go out and play, uh, but they don't know how to play. And they don't even know the, the basics. And as Jackie Burke once said, they ruined golf for the golfers. <laughs> and Jackie said, if you didn't know how to join a yacht club, would you, if you didn't know how to sail, would you join a yacht club? So uh, I think when I was growing up, we learned it starting with three foot putts, easy chip shots, pit shots. I think dad's theory was if you couldn't put the club on the ball in a chip shot, how are you going to be able to do it with the driver? So I think the game, uh, like you said, uh, you have to know how to play golf, I think, to appreciate really good courses. I really, I really believe that. I agree with that. Let me ask you a question, Billy. I was at dinner with a friend and he just picking it up. I said, oh, really? Did you get, get a lesson? He said, yeah. You know, what's the first thing that the pro taught you? Just curious. This is first lesson. Never yeah. played before. And he went on and on and on about the swing and this and that. Oh, and boy. And I said, get another pro. I said, <laughs> you need to learn the grip if you've never yes. played before. And I came home, bought him the Hogan book because the first chapter is the grip. Sure. Did I do wrong or did I help him? No, I think you did right. I think that um, as we all three of us know, changing the grip isn't that easy. So if you start out with a really bad grip and you hit thousands of balls with it, and then you have a pro that teaches the importance of it, uh, immediately the player feels uncomfortable. And that's when I give him the Claude Harmon story. One time he changed my grip and I said, well, daddy, it doesn't feel good. His exact words were, you appear to be a bright young man. He didn't say I was. And uh, 
he asked me if I knew what an inanimate object was. And I said, I think so. And he asked me if the ball was inanimate. And I said, yes. Club inanimate, yes. He said, well, those two things don't care about your feelings. <laughs> that the downswing is not an encounter group <laughs> between your feelings. And that the ball is going to go pretty much where the club face tells it. And the grip influences the club face dramatically. So I think most players who start off with bad grips uh, will struggle uh, with golf. Yeah, it's quite interesting. You don't meet too many. I don't meet too many people. You probably do that day one. I never, you know, somebody's got some driving range along the road experience, right? Or top yeah. golf or whatever, right? This guy had zero. Yeah. And another pro. They got him out there swinging drivers, you know. Yeah. They can't put the club on the ball hitting the chip shot. So I think my dad was right about that in the sense that he he wanted you to experience putting the club on the ball properly. And if you could hit down on a little chip shot, you could feel compression and things like that. And then you could maybe hit a 30-yard pitch shot. But until you could do those things, there was no reason to, to you know, go from second grade to uh, senior year at Iona Prep. So a little, little exercise that just came to my head. Let's say your dad is on this conversation and we just heard that Justin Thomas called him up. Because mm -hmm. Justin Thomas is having, you know, like everybody does. He says, can you help me? What what would you think, you, your dad, what would you say to a pro like that who's obviously top talent? But he's now, and that happened to your dad, right? Gary Player and others would come to see him. Mm -hmm. I mean, Ricky Fowler's a good example, right? Well, Butch now, yeah. 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 Well, we were taught, and I think it was uh, one of the geniuses of Claude Harmon, and, 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 and it's really kind of, blossom through butch is that when you're working with a talented player the first thing you do is figure out why their swing works if they wouldn't be good players if their swing was bad and then be very careful in what you change and so um i'm sure dad would watch jt hit some balls um he has some unique moves in his swing i don't think he would touch those unique moves just as butch didn't you know touched uh dustin johnson's severely bowed left wrist and things like that and so i think that one of the things i see nowadays in modern day teaching is there's a lot of coaches that are more interested in putting their stamp on things for a kaleidoscope of reasons that Bill and I know pretty well, uh, rather than help the student uh, play better with what they have. Now we're talking about the real talented player. We're not talking about a 36 handicap. They've got to change. Yeah. So I think uh, with the really better players, you tweak some things, but very rarely do you have to do a huge major overhaul. And I think if you do, uh, you're inviting uh, a lot of trouble personally. The, so I don't know exactly what he would tell him. I, and funny, I had a conversation with Bones about six weeks ago. I've never met Justin Thomas, so I don't know him from Adam. He couldn't pick me out of the lineup. And I said, as a fan, just watching him, I think he has a very interesting issue in the sense that I don't believe in any sense of the world that he's a choker. I said, I think he wants to win so bad and his desire to win and his desire to be successful is so strong that he has a hard time calming down on Sundays. 
And then he doesn't seem to let the game come to him, let's say, or the round come to him. And Bones agreed. He said he, he's very hard on himself. And uh, I think a lot of times players, when they get in the hunt, I know it as a caddy, um, you know, the first few holes you think are the most important thing in the world. And if you make a bogey early, you think it's the end of the world. And the fact of the matter is, everybody you're playing against is also nervous. And so I think it's probably really hard to be patient on Sundays in big tournaments when you have a chance to win. And so I would say a guy like uh, JT, I would look more at his mental makeup than his swing. He has his own swing. It's very upright. He, he kicks that right knee out on the downswing and the left foot flies off the ground and stuff. I think if you tried to change that, he probably wouldn't break 80. Right. Because he's won a lot of tournaments doing that. So it's yeah. not like he's yeah. won doing it. So he's yeah. won, what, two PGAs and a bunch of other good tournaments. So he, he's a heck of a player. Maybe puts too much pressure on himself to to get to number one. On the same token, if if Scotty Scheffler or John Rahm came to you, do you tell him, get lost? You don't need any of my help. Do you, well, I think it's that situation. I have a funny story. Um, <laughs> my brother Dick was working with Lanny Watkins. And, uh, my dad was at Lockenbar where Butch was. And Lockenbar in Houston is very close to the airport. So Lanny flew down, Dick picked him up, and Lockenbar is maybe 10 minutes away. So they went to work at Lockenbar, but dad was watching Dick give Lanny a lesson. And Dick said it was the most nervous he's ever been because usually it was we were watching dad give a good player lesson. And, uh, he said, Dad sat there for two or three hours, never said a word, which he thought was nice. And uh, Lanny, when you watched him in person, was unusually good. He wasn't just good. He was unusually good. Uh, his ball striking capabilities were really, really very, very impressive. And he had a great session. And they went in for lunch and... Uh, Lanny turned, uh, my dad turned to Lanny and he said, you know, I don't, I only have two things to tell you. And Lanny kind of perked up and he said, uh, first thing I do is make sure I get my clubs and myself to the tee on time. <laughs> <laughs> and the second thing I would do is I change my route to the bank every Monday. So you don't get robbed. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm really curious about is why are you taking lessons from Dick? He said, because your ball comes out like it's delivered from a Remington rifle and Dick's ball comes out like it's delivered by a seed gun going 360 degrees all over the course. <laughs> so it took that about three hours to get the harpoon into Dick after he buttered Lanny up. But his point was he wouldn't have changed anything with Lanny Watkins' swing, even though it had a lot of individual characteristics, very low hands, incredibly fast tempo. Uh, if you ever look at Lanny's swing in slow motion, go to YouTube, very odd uh, impact position with his left arm bent and his left wrist cupped a little bit like uh, Lee Westwood. These were all things that dad probably would not have looked at in a model swing, but dad looked at the ball. And the ball liked Lanny's swing. So he wouldn't have changed anything. The players of that ability, they're kind of golfing geniuses. So you don't really uh, cross up the wires of a genius, I don't think. Oh, this hole here. You know, the one thing I don't, I've, I'm like Billy Regan. I've never played Augusta, but I've walked mm -hmm. 
probably yeah. walked 10 loops on it when I went in two, two occasions. Yeah. Nicholas always said sort of aim over the, the bunker, right? Mm -hmm. No matter where the pin is. Yet, like you said earlier, when usually on the last day, they put the pin over on the right, mm -hmm. which in my eye is a longer carry. Longer yes, it is. The water. It's about 12 or 15 yards longer. Right. And most amateurs wouldn't think that. They'd say, it's oh, it's 140 to the middle. Oh, it's, an it's easy, like 152 easy to hole. that. Easy <laughs> hole. Easy hole. Why don't more people just aim like Nicholas said? I think that's a good question. And um, I think Freddie kind of answered it years ago when he got the luckiest break in the history of the Masters when the ball did hey, not come back down in the water because it had rained that week. And and I think there's some truth to it. So they're hitting an eight iron off a tee. They're the best players in the world. Um, they know they're supposed to go over the middle of that bunker. Uh, but they're so gifted, I think, that their mind is always directing the ball and the club to the pin. And unless they have 100% commitment, or as Tiger loves to say, which is a great expression, make a committed swing to a conservative target. It's hard for these guys to shoot away, you know, 40 feet away from a pin with an eight or nine iron off a tee. It's just... Not in their buildup. And then you throw the the fact that, uh, and don't discount this, they're aware of all the horror stories. They watched them. They watched it happen over the years. And then the wind is really, really strange there. I can remember carrying for Jay. I can't recall who we were with. And it was a gusty day, and the guy hit a seven iron. And it got about halfway there, and the wind switched, and the, the ball carried up into those azaleas that we're looking at. I don't know. And, uh, you know, 40 yards over the green. Wow. And so I figured, well, you know, it's not a nine iron shot, that's for sure. So we went with the same club and Jay hit the same shot. And halfway there, the wind gusted back in our face and the ball went straight up in the air about halfway there and landed right in the middle of Ray's Creek. So I would say the balls ended up uh, 50 or 60 yard difference with a very similar shot. So you add that indecision. And it's true, you get on the 12th tee and you look down to the flag on 11 and it's going to the left and you look at the flag on 12th green, it's going to the right and then you throw up the, you know, the grass and it's coming in your face and the player says, what's the wind doing? You want to go say, how the hell do I know? No one's figured it out since 1934, you know? Right. <laughs> so when the wind is blowing, uh, it actually in some respects takes away ability. Because once the ball leaves the club, it's out of your hands. And and a lot of times I've seen very good shots end up in the water or over uh, well over the green. So it's probably the most magical hole, I would say, uh, in the history of golf. Because as you know, you know, 150-yard hole for guys of this uh, talent shouldn't be that hard a hole. But the one thing that you did bring up, Bob, which is true, the green runs at an angle. So let's say the front left is 140, it's 155 to the front right. So if you go to the middle of the green, you can't take enough the club that you would take to go to the right side of the green. So all of these things are uh, swirling around in your head as you're standing on that tee. And it's Sunday at Augusta. So uh, the hole seems to really uh, um, uncover the humanness of these professional golfers they're they're scared to death on the tee i don't care what they say in, in real time they must be thinking about it from 
from the get-go when they get there. I think when they're driving to the course, there's a probably a handful of shots that they're thinking about that they're already choking on, you know, as they're having their breakfast. <laughs> and oddly enough, um, uh, Wingfoot doesn't really have a hole like that where Jay Haas, who loves Wingfoot, and is the only guy who uh, made the cut in the 74, 84, 2006 Open and the 97 PGA. So spanning four decades, he made cuts. He said, the funny thing about Wingfoot is when you're driving to the course, there really isn't one shot that scares you to death. He said, maybe the, the shot on number three West, you know, having to hit a shot that. But he said, by and large, you don't drive there choking about a certain hole. It just kind of, it's a 15 round heavyweight fighter, an 18 round heavy, where Augusta has, you know, a handful of shots that you're thinking about having breakfast. That's yeah, they can make or break your day. What's going to happen? Yeah, what's going to happen? You, what would those holes be other than 12, maybe? You know, a lot of times the hole location, you would think that uh, the second shot on the first hole can be sporty because the wind swirls there. And Augusta has so many places on every hole uh, dictated by pin placements. Uh, I'd get fired if I announced it. I'm so tired of them say hole locations for some reason. <laughs> they have to um, say it. You know, and well judged some of these new terms. Um, so if the pin was the in the front left on number three at Augusta, and they're hitting a 60-yard wedge shot, if they come up a foot short and it sucks back down that hill, they might make six. Back to my point, if you go over the green, the chip is back uphill. So you would never think of missing a green with a 60-yard shot, right? But if you go over the green, the pitch shot or chip shot's actually pretty benign. Short of the green, death. So even though it's a 60-yard shot, uh, if you go over the green on number one, you're dead. And so uh, Augusta lures you into missing in the wrong places. Obviously, I think 11, 12, 13, uh, 15 is a uh, hole that I don't think they talk about enough because when you're, I know, Bob, you've been there, but when you stand up on that hill, um, there's really nothing behind the green. Right. So the depth perception is very odd. And it's a little more downhill, I think, than it shows on TV. So you're standing there, and it's like you're hitting to a tabletop. There's some pine trees back there. But, you know, as we look at number 12, you know, you got a hill behind the green, and it's kind of, uh, you know, it's like a glove. But number 15, there's nothing. There's no depth perception. So um, even when the ball's in the air with a wedge, you're not sure exactly where it's going to come down. And then if the wind is blowing. So I think that is a very underrated shot. And if you go long left, it goes into the water. And if you do go long, maybe 10, 12 yards, you could then chip it back in the water. So all of these things are going through the, the players' minds. And uh, so there's a lot of indecision that goes on at Augusta. And I, and I think Hole locations play a big part of it. The, the sixth hole, the par three, when the pin's up on that back tier, that's got to be, unless you've seen that hole like you have, Bob, and oh. I've had to caddy on it and try to pull a club, which I'm basically guessing at. Uh, to put a ball on that tier, you got to hit such a good shot. It's unbelievable what a good shot that is. So I think um, 
pin look pin placements dictate a lot of what scares the hell out of you at augusta national is there an elevation change on six from the team oh, big the time yeah yeah it's very lower. big the green's lower right Yes, considerably. And it's another one of those holes when the ball is in the air, you have no idea where it's coming down. You don't know whether to say get up, get down. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, awkward shots at, at Augusta. You know, actually, you know, I've played there not as much as you might think, maybe 10 times. And it's really not that hard a course, believe it or not. It really isn't. And uh, I played there in... Uh, November it was 45 degrees out now I'm playing the member tees but I'm 72 years old and I shot 75 uh, but it's a hard course under tournament conditions to shoot a, a, a good score if the, the greens aren't holding if the greens are holding then it's pretty easy to use the slopes and and uh, but if the wind is blowing and it's playing fast, boy, you, you hit a lot of shots that you have no idea what, where they're coming down when it's in the air you don't know what to say to them a 10 handicap playing the ninth hole, for example, from the member tees. Can the 10 handicap get it down there to hit a short iron, or is the 10 handicap hitting a nine? Uh, I wouldn't say a short iron, but um, it looks he like would get it down cut. there where it'd be easy to make a bogey. Yeah. But I was thinking it's like a hybrid into that green, and that's a scary thing for me. That green. Well, nine or 10. A ninth. And then yeah, I would yeah, no, that's a very too. awkward shot. In fact, yeah. when I played there in November, I hit a pretty good drive and, uh, I had a six iron and the wind was in and left to right. It was like, but the oh. green, the, the fairway slopes for a slice, the green receives a hook, you know? So you've got all these kind of uh, contradictions going on in your mind. And I was thinking, boy, what, this is a really hard shot to get it up on the green. So see the other guys, the, the pros are hitting wedges. That's a little bit different. But I'm hitting a six iron off a downhill side hill lie without the club head speed to put the ball way up in the air. So I have to hit almost a perfect shot to hit the hit the green. So uh, once again, weather dictates a lot. But that would be a perfect example. That's actually a good call on your part. You have a slice lie downhill lie to an uphill hook green. <laughs> so visually, nothing looks in your favor. Now they're hitting wedges, so it's not quite the big a deal. But if they were back there hitting four or five, six irons, you know, uh, like I said, I would like to see them have to hit hybrids into some of these greens instead of eight or nine irons. Well, yeah, the 83, 88 shooter is going to have a hybrid. Probably yeah. going to want to hit a draw, which is going to turn into a hook. And which then you've you got do. no chance to hold it, right? Yeah, so now he's turn got to a ground ball. 20 yards left to the left bunker and everything's moving away from him and but he can make a bogey if he has golf course management, which would, which he probably doesn't. So <laughs> well, you pointed out the third hole. The third hole is, I think, the difference between Wingfoot. One of the differences and Augusta. I still think that's a downhill chip from over the third hole, and I say, "Oh, he hit it over. He's got no chance. He's going to chip it over." But not having played it, even walking it, because you don't get to walk over there. If no, you don't. You there. do not. Nope. You're not allowed there. So you don't get the appreciation of that. Like you said, it's, sometimes it's better to be long. I think you oh, said. Well, it breaks quite a bit yeah. to the right. So where yeah. you're chipping the ball, you're actually chipping it in up into a hill. And so uh, it's doable. Down below, uh, you know, Sheffler got very lucky when that ball went in the oh. hole. That thing was going 15, 
hole. And so what happens if that doesn't go in? That's the three well, or four person 15, game. 20 feet. And now he's going to have have one of those putts for, you know, the art of two putting. Um, having said that, I thought he had perhaps the greatest short game week I've ever seen in my life that week for, for four days, which is uh, a real compliment to him because people with short, great short games, in my view, have to have great nerves. And the nerves will be exposed at Augusta. If you don't have a good short game, I was talking to someone the other day and I said, you know, you can play good, but if that putter doesn't feel good in your hands at Augusta, it's going to be hard to, you know, not only do you have to putt good, but it has to, everything has to feel good. You know, I have to feel like I'm putting good. If you don't feel like you're putting good there, boy, that place will eat you alive. 1986, it looked like Jack Nicholas had a feel for the putter. You know, Jay, I caddied for Jay that week, and he was paired with Jack on Saturday. And uh, uh, Jay actually played well on Sunday, too, not quite as well as Jack. I think he might have shot 66 or 7 and finished fifth. So he had a good good Masters. And uh, I think Jack shot 69 on Saturday, and Jay shot 71. But they really weren't in, you know, they were in the top 12 or something at that point. I remember Jack hit a one iron on 13 on Saturday. Uh, it's funny how stupid I can be at times. Pin was over in the right and he hit this high towering one iron, maybe six feet right of the hole. But at that time, you wrongly assumed that Jack was going to always birdie 13 and 15 is that that was an automatic and his ball literally landed one or two feet short of being perfect in a kickback in the in the creek raised creek and I don't know why in my infinite wisdom I turned to Jay and I said well I guess Jack can't go like he used to <laughs> and Jay turned to me and said well for one that was a pretty damn good shot you know, that wasn't like he exactly choked on that shot. And then 24 hours later, when he won, Jay said to me, he says, please tell me when you think I'm finished. <laughs> <laughs> so he had remembered what I had said on yeah. 13, you know, and he put it kind of in the back pocket to bring it out at the right time. But he said, please let me know when you think I'm finished. <laughs> oh, my God. What, what was that like? Uh, you know, that must have been kind of an intense round to caddy for. Well, <clears throat> I think there were maybe two or three times that Jay had a, a little outside chance on the back nine. I, I tell a story. I can't. I'm not, I'm not good with dates. Obviously, I, I know what happened in 1948, and I know '86 because of Nicholas's win. But there was another year. I think he uh, started out six shots back and went out in 31, and um, he had a beautiful drive on number 10. And uh, he was kind of racing off the tee like secretariat. And I got thinking, boy, I got to slow him down a little bit here because we got uh, we got some water to cross coming up. <laughs> and, you know, when you're caddying and you're in the middle of these things, it's not like you have a uh, something prepared because you're human, too. And in my case, you know, his uncle won the Masters and my dad won the Masters. So this is a pretty special two hours that we're about to encounter and so I caught up to him and I in my infinite wisdom as I was going to be Bob Rotella before Bob Rotella 
And I said, you know, Jay, when you were a kid and you were at little St. Clair Country Club in Belleville, Illinois, and you were putting on the putting green, waiting for your mom to pick you up, you know, the sun was going down, you had a putt to win the Masters or putt to win the Open. And I said, you know, we're kind of here right now. You know, we just have to make some good decisions and so on and so forth. And Jay said, well, that's a great story, Bill. But the fact of the matter is, is I'm not on the putting green at St. Clair Country Club in Belleville. And I'm not waiting for my mother to pick me up. I'm on the back nine on Sunday and you couldn't get a grease needle up my fanny with a sledgehammer. (laughs) 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 This was the reaction both of us had. We both laughed. It was a very funny interchange. And what I really liked about it was uh, I liked his honesty. This is an important nine holes. I'm not waiting for my mom. (laughs) The back nine on Sunday with a chance to win. And I remember my brothers were there watching. And I think Jay shot, I want to say he shot 35 on the back nine, maybe finished fifth or fourth, whatever it was. And uh, they said, why were you laughing so hard going down the the 10th fairway? And I I told them. So in, in some respects, his comment broke the ice just the way I wanted to to be broken, but it really <laughs> my story didn't really resonate with him very much. <laughs> no, but you got where you wanted to. That's what yeah, I yeah. We did get to where we wanted to, and I think a lot of times <laughs> I tell people that when you caddy in a tour event, you're probably asked almost twenty questions a hole, so you multiply that by seventy-two. So you're well over a thousand questions you're asked. And they're not multiple choice normally. (laughs) And you don't have time to answer them. You can't say, well, I'll get back to you in in five minutes. And so you really have to be uh, unusually present. Uh, And you've had to have done all your homework and your prep work. And uh, sometimes when you're watching a tournament, you'll see the caddy going into his yard, yardage book on the green now when the guy's already putting. And what he's doing really is going to the next hole. And he's looking at the pin and he's looking at the, you know, how far is it going to be to the left bunker when he asked me, because you have to know that at that very moment, you can't start fumbling around looking at the yardage book and, you know, acting like you're not aware. It's a good way to get fired. And so you're kind of always on. And even that little uh, scenario where I see Jay racing off the tee, what do I do? Do I don't say anything? Or in my case, I came up with some silly story, but I got out of them when I wanted to get out of them. Billy Harmon. Welcome, Billy. Master storyteller. (laughs) Master storyteller. Hopefully will tell us some great stories about the Masters. I have a few, yes. Thanks for joining us today. Billy Horner. We really appreciate your feedback. And please subscribe to the show and hit the bell icon so you get notified of new episodes. Mark Gable. Hit them hard and hit them off. That's 36 holes.